welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Our aim in this episode is to make you feel good, be it by improving your life or helping you to improve the lives of others. And as a result, we have quite a diverse programme for you. You'll learn why a book of restaurants, none of which A.A. Gill would want to eat at, is actually a good thing. You'll also discover more about The Yellow World and the bravery of author Albert Espinosa in an extract from his speech to the Teenage Cancer Trust. We've got an audiobook extract of Claire Balding's heartwarming memoir, My Animals and Other Family, as well as relationship advice from Meredith Goldstein, who writes a daily love advice column and is the author of The Wedding Guests. We know that there's nothing like food to cheer the soul, so we'll be having a chat with Catherine Hill of The Weekend Cookbook, who tells us how to prepare our cupboard for easy and delicious meals and guides us through her recipe for parma ham and mozzarella melts. Yum! And lastly, we have an interview with Ravina Bajwa, audiobooks managing editor here at Penguin, who will be telling us all about the Turning 18 project. So first up, here's Ben Bruzy, who's going to explain the title of his book, Poo Poo Hot Pot. Hello and welcome to the Penguin podcast. My name is Victoria Lyons and I work for Penguin Digital and I'm joined with Ben Bruzy, who's the author of Poo Poo Hot Pot. Can you start off by telling our listeners about Poo Poo Hot Pot? Okay, so Poo Poo Hot Pot is a scholarly, uh, academically rigorous book. Um, <laughs> it's um, a hundred of the world's best restaurant names. And, and by best, I mean um, funniest, silliest, um, and most astonishing, really. So uh, the book started um, a couple of years ago when I went to visit Harvard University. Um, I was trying to further myself, better myself. Um, and about sort of two minutes away from Harvard, before I got there, I was distracted um, by a restaurant. And it was a, a blue sign, dull blue sign with white lettering. Uh, and it spelt out Poo Poo Hot Pot which was a Chinese restaurant that did free free takeaway. Um, and there were hordes of us uh, students going to Harvard uh, and we, we were all transfixed by the sign and we all thought it was very silly and we were giggling and we thought, God, they, they must know that it sounds like like, like excrement. Um, but, um, but I took a picture of it and, and I guess from that point on I started noticing that lots of restaurants like Poo Poo Hot Pot are everywhere. Um, so I think one of the next ones I spotted in Boston as well was Thai Tannic. Uh, so that's a, a Thai restaurant punning on, on a tragedy that happened a, a while back that you may know about. Um, and, and from there it became a bit of an obsession really. Um, so this book is a hundred, a hundred of, 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 of the strangest. Uh, and I guess they can be broken down into sort of, uh, unintentional ones, which were, which were often the best. Um, so... There's a restaurant in South Kensington in London uh, called Fat Fuck, which um, is spelled P-H-A-T, uh, P-H-U-C, but it is pronounced Fat Fuck. Um, and Fat Fuck actually means Happy Buddha in Vietnamese. Uh, so so that, that was a, a very sort of happy coincidence when I stumbled upon it. <laughs> so um, how did you find all these names? Was it solely through your travels? I mean, it sounds like you actually started to travel to find these names for the book. Yeah, well, my, my brother was teaching English in in Thailand, so I thought I should go out to see him. But I also thought it would be a very good excuse to take some pictures of restaurant names because I know that the, the Thais love a pun. Um, and I quickly realised that they particularly love a pun when it, sort of relates to faecal matter so that there were a lot of pee and poo steakhouses there was a pp uh bakery pp bakery had the tagline um i think freshly made each day and the sign was in yellow lettering <laughs> <laughs> um uh but no the, the, the best one i well, the most enjoyable one in thailand that i discovered uh one day we took mopeds out to find a waterfall uh, and it, it was great, and we but we got completely lost, um, and so we were in the middle of nowhere, sort of quite dense, sort of tropical forest, I guess, really, and we pulled over to a petrol station, what we thought was a petrol station, and the, the name of the of the station was uh, Cabbages and Condoms, and and it was very weird, and I was actually too afraid to go in because I thought I thought it was a brothel, 
and we'd, we'd, we'd seen a few other brothels in Thailand, remarkably enough. And uh, my brother went in first and he asked for some water because it was hot and they, they gave him a tray of condoms. Uh, and, and it turned out that it, it wasn't a petrol station. It was, it was a chain of restaurants that uh, were designed to uh, promote sexual awareness and health. And so um, I think recently they've just opened in London as well. There's a cabbages and condoms. Um, so they were quite forward thinking and it's obviously catching on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know why anyone would ever put cabbages and condoms in the same in the same sentence. No. Well, any listeners out there based in London will yeah, be running no, out should, to go find you, cabbages you should, and condoms. You should try it. Let me, let me know how it is. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to go. So I guess that brings me on to my next question. Because you didn't go into cabbages and condoms, your brother went in. So, have you eaten in any of these restaurants? Oh yeah, um, some of them. I mean, I I recently heard from A. A. Gill, the food critic for the Sunday Times, and he said the interesting thing about the book is that there's not a single restaurant that he would want to eat in <laughs> inside it, which I thought was quite a compliment uh, coming from him. Uh, but no, I have visited quite a few of them. Um, sometimes it's sometimes it's been great. There's a good fish and chip shop in Gaul in England called Frying Nemo, and they do a terrific, <laughs> terrific battered cod. Um, I guess elsewhere, eat here and get gas, which was in Indiana, um, which I guess obviously get 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 petrol, but it's quite startling when you're driving down the highway. <laughs> Um, that one, I, I had to pull over and take a picture, and I went inside and I had a waffle. I think in in the air and get gas. Did you get gas? Um, I think we did fill up. Actually, it was, it was good <laughs> good value all round. It was tasty, and yeah, got us the extra miles. Um, I went. I, I tend to quite enjoy going to fish and chip shops and doing various eating challenges. So uh, I'm quite a slight guy, but I do like fish finger challenges and my record's about 33 oh. and we 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 did one of them at new cod on the block which was a, which was a great restaurant and again they did good fish and chips they did good donners um lot, 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 lots of things so um, your advice would be go to the fish and chip ones yeah first. The, the fish and chips ones are first i mean occasionally you get burned occasionally there's a restaurant that you think's funny um but is actually a really good restaurant and really expensive so i went to gaylord Indian restaurant uh, the other weekend because I thought it would be a lark and I took my girlfriend and I thought this is going to be hilarious we're just going to be sniggering the whole time and eating there ironically uh, and it turns out that Gaylord is actually a very well established London restaurant it's very expensive um, it was sort of £20 uh, main course and I think we spent over £100 so it was the most expensive joke meal I'd ever had so the restaurant's uh, getting their own back on you yeah <laughs> they, they, they got their own back I mean I just couldn't believe that they had all this sort of um monogrammed menus and everything with Gaylord blazoned all over it and inside the aesthetic was pretty camp it was sort of um (laughs) lots of sort of orientalist sort of paintings uh with sort of strange men with wispy beards playing flutes um so there was a lot to a lot to read into but at the same time the last yeah the last laugh was had on me really yeah and um what is your favorite restaurant name that you've come across oh that's really tough that's really tough um I think a, a a good restaurant name can sort of just uh, perk you up when you're walking down the street because often often you're staring at the pavement or you're worrying about other things. But a, but a good one, you just look up and you see it and it's a ray of sunshine. Uh, and I think that the best restaurant that did that for me uh, was a sweet one, actually. It was a, a Japanese restaurant and it was Me So Happy. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and, it was really, and it was really touching. But saying that, um, when you see something that's just revolting, it's yeah. it's very funny, so... Um, I guess, I guess the most revolting restaurant. Well, this one is a this one is the only cheat in the book. But I swear this is how it happened. I was walking down the street and I saw vagina tandoori, uh, yeah. and I just couldn't believe it. And it and it turned out that the restaurant was actually called Nagina Tandoori, uh, <laughs> and there was a lamppost blocking the N. Um, um, so, but it, but it was quite it was quite. It's quite startling. Um, another one was Booty's House of Crabs. I oh. could I, I couldn't quite work out no. what that one was. And also Crabby Dicks and Crabby <laughs> Dicks. They were a bit they were a bit crude actually. Crabby Dicks knew what they had on their hands, <laughs> and they they had a little sign beneath it that said, uh, "Dip your dip your balls in our semen sauce." Oh, I think. Di- <laughs> uh, dip your oyster balls in our semen sauce. So. 
I almost don't enjoy it anymore. It's like it's like they've, yeah, they've become too tricky. Uh, oh dear. And um, has your book inspired your friends and family to go out and? Oh, definitely, definitely. It's one. It's one of the best things when you get an email from someone. Uh, saying, oh, I've just spotted a really funny restaurant. And often they're not funny at all. They're sort of... <laughs> <laughs> it's something vaguely like, yeah, like a restaurant with like a bear in or something. The bear restaurant or something. Yeah. But it's really sweet that they're... That they're, they're trying. That they're trying. Yeah. Um, occasionally they will, they will send you a good one. Uh, the best one that my mum sent me was in France. It was B.O. Cafe. <laughs> and it was a completely serious bistro. <laughs> and then it was, it was very funny. Um... Uh, another good one was was Butty Boys in London, <laughs> which claimed to do the best sausage sandwiches around, which I, I thought again was quite amusing for my mind. Um, yeah. But yeah, there's there's lots of there's a good soup place called Nincom Soup that yeah. someone recommended to me, and they do great soup, uh, yeah. and it's a great pun. So uh, top marks. Great, and I'm sure many people and our listeners will want to share with you that the funny restaurant names they've seen. So. Can they do that? Is there anything that... Yeah, no, no, they should. Please, please let me know about them. I mean, they are, like I say, they are everywhere. I mean, whatever town you're from, whatever country you're from, there will always be a few silly ones lurking somewhere. Um, I've, I've got a blog, uh, com, which is P-U-P-U-H-O-T-P-O-T.tumblr.com. I try and... Uh, keep up to date with the latest ones. So last week I saw La Doudou in Kil- Kilburn in London, which again is just sort of just there in between to sort of a pharmacy, I think, and um, a Sainsbury's. Yeah. It's just there. And, and so that the, these treasures are all waiting to be found. Brilliant. So. Well, thank you, Ben, for talking to us today about Poo Poo Hot Pot. And um, I can't wait to go back and read it again and have a good yeah, giggle at my it, desk. It, it, yeah, it rewards multiple readings. Um, and I guess, I, like the Olympics, I hope it can inspire a generation. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Brilliant. I think my favourite has to be Full Shizzle. Next up, we have an inspiring speech from Albert Espinosa. Uh, hello and good afternoon. Before I start, I would like to say thank you for inviting me today. It's an honor for me to be part of the Penguin family and to be able to present my first book to you, The Yellow World. First of all, I need to warn you that my English is not very good. I have been practicing this presentation for some time with a private teacher. It's been a little like the movie The King's Speech, only without the stuttering. So now, back to the book. The Yellow World is an autobiography. It is about my life when I was very young. I had cancer from the age of 14 to 24. And during those 10 years, I lost a leg, a lung, and part of my liver. But it was also a happy time for me. In the yellow world, I do not not write about cancer. I write about what I learned from cancer. Everything it taught me for everyday life. I was then inspired by this book to write a series called Red Band Society. And perhaps the most incredible thing about this has not been the number of awards it has won or the incredible audience it has found, but rather that Steven Spielberg bought the rights to the series for the ABC television network in the United States, with the screen adaptation to be done by Marta Kaufman, the creator of the TV show Friends. I have always thought that if you believe in dreams, they will come true. I had the good fortune to have gone from a small hospital room to the big screen. The Yellow World is a positive book that is full of humor and the desire to live. Many times when I walk through the streets wearing shorts, people pretend not to look at my artificial leg. But two seconds after passing me, they turn around to stare at it. But I always turn around as well and catch them staring. And I ask them, instead of staring at it, why don't they just ask me about what is clearly a very important part of my life? I was 13 years old when I lost my leg, but it was lucky enough to give it a farewell party. 
The night before it was amputated, the doctor told me to give it a party, and so I did. I invited the people who were somehow related to my leg. I invited a football goalkeeper against whom I had once scored 50 goals. Well, in reality, I only scored one against him, but they let people with cancer say anything they like. So I say I had scored 50. The goalkeeper agreed to go along with it. I also invited a girl I used to play footsie with under a table. And lastly, I danced my last dance with two legs with the nurse. I didn't have any music with me, my, but my roommate was a fan of Spanish singer Antonio Machin. And so he put on one of his CD with the song Wait For Me In Heaven. So my last dance on two legs was to song Wait For Me In Heaven, which was perfect for the moment. A good thing about when they amputated my leg was that I didn't feel a phantom limb after which is the feeling of having a leg when you don't have one. I think I gave my leg such a proper goodbye that even the phantom left. Another really good thing was, they, was then they asked me if I wanted to leave my leg to science. I wanted to leave it to science, but for some reason science wasn't interested in it. So I ended up burying it instead. And that let me say, um, probably I think I can say with complete confidence I am probably the only person here that has one foot in the grave. I always say that humor helps to explain everything. For example, people always think that artificial legs like the one I have are made of book like, I, like a pirates. But I have always believed that the best jokes are based on reality. For example, I used to wear a hydraulic lead, but it often broke down and leaked oil. I found myself walking in the streets and a little old lady told me, you are leaking oil. And it was true, there was a trail of oil leading right up to my leg. Now I wear an electronic leg and, and I find myself with the same problem that everyone with an electronic artificial leg faces. You have to recharge it at night, so in hotels where there is only one electrical tablet, I have to decide if I recharge my laptop, my mobile phone, or my artificial leg. As children in hospital, the only day we behave like really sick kids was Christmas Day. We all knew that was the day the Barca football players came to visit us, and they always gave assigned football to the kids who looked the sickest. So that day we all stay in our beds with a blanket pulled up to our chins, trying to look as weak as possible. I think my greatest achievement was not beating four types of cancer, it was putting on the world's sickest face so that Gary Lineker gave me a football. This yellow wall is full of this happiness. I believe I have been very lucky in life. For me, this has been a very special year. I have been lucky enough to see my third book become the number one seller in Spain, and my novel have been translated into more than 20 languages. And I always believe that it has a lot to do with the life that live on inside of me. My friend from hospital and I made a pact. We had other friends at the hospital who had died of cancer when they were 14 years old. So we decided that we would share out their life between ourselves so that they could live on inside of us. Today, we live out the hopes and dreams that they were not able to live out. During the 10 years that I was in hospital, when we shared out all the life that had been lost, I was given a total of 3.7 life in addition to my own. I've always felt that I have 4.7 life inside of me. 4.7 life who wanted to stand be before you today and tell you that The Yellow World is my favorite book and that it is an honor and it gives me great happiness that it has been translated into English. 
I know that you will take good care of this world and that you will make it very yellow. Thank you for your kind attention. Next, we have an extract from Claire Balding's memoir, My Animals and Other Family, in which she describes her first real love, a dog called Candy. The first face I can remember seeing was Candy's. She was my protector and my companion, my nanny and my friend, a strong, snuffling, steady presence. I looked into her big brown eyes, pushed my pudgy fingers into her cavernous wrinkles and smelt her stale breath. It was an all-in sensory experience. I was home. I pulled her ears, lifted back her lip to examine her tiny teeth and gripped her rolls of fat. She never snapped, never growled, never even gave me a warning glare. Candy was a saint, and she knew her role in life. She was put on earth to guard me, and she would, to the end of her days. Candy was my mother's boxer, and the pecking order was clear. In terms of affection and attention, Candy came first, and anyone else, new baby included, came second. Candy loved my mother without question, and my mother needed that from someone, even if it was only a dog. Candy was what they call a red and white boxer, a deep chestnut colour in her body, with a white chest, white around her neck and across her face. Her eyes sagged, her titty swung low and loose, and her girth was wider than was strictly desirable. But as far as my mother and I were concerned, Ursula Andrus could move aside. She had nothing on Candy. When she was excited, Candy's whole body showed it. The move started in her stub of a tail and proceeded to her hips, which would rotate from side to side, making it virtually impossible for her to walk. Her body shook with delight, and her lips drew back in an unmistakable grin. Most of the time, she was rather matronly and sensible, but when she was happy, she was delirious. I adored her, and she responded with an immediate, unquestioning sense of duty. She would lie by my side, move if I moved, and allow herself to be a living, breathing baby walker as I used her to climb to my feet, wobbling on my plump, short legs, and she pulled me gently forward. When the strain got too much and I collapsed onto a nappy-cushioned backside, she would sit and wait for me to get going again. She didn't much like other people coming near me, particularly men, warning them off with a withering glare. Candy seemed to be the only one who was pleased to get to know me. The day that I first came back from hospital, Mum put the basket down on the floor and left me there. Bertie, the aloof lurcher with pretensions to grandeur, had a quick sniff, cocked his leg on the side of the basket and demonstrated exactly what he thought of it all. He stuck his head in the air and walked off, never to give me a second glance. Candy, on the other hand, planted herself next to me and there she stayed. Makes me wish I had a dog. Right, next up we have some advice for the lovelorn or simply those in love. Meredith Goldstein is the expert and she's here to help us all get it right. Hi, my name is Meredith Goldstein, and I am the author of The Wedding Guests, which is a book about five single people who have to go to a wedding all by themselves. Meredith, what is the most common problem you get in your love letters column? Well, over the past few years, definitely technology causes the most problems. Uh, in love letters, I get hundreds of letters about text messages, voicemails, Facebook specifically, and uh, just social media in general. So people never quite know whether or not their partner is cheating. Sometimes they'll find people looking up an old boyfriend or girlfriend on Facebook and they'll email me and say, does that count as cheating? So, you know, I think that between Facebook and just breaking into each other's accounts, breaking into text messages, reading each other's emails, it's te technology causes so many problems. What was your inspiration for writing the book? Well, I, it was a summer that I had been to many, many, many weddings. In fact, over the years, um, that one year, which was 2007, I think I went to, you know, close to 15 weddings. And I was in a bunch of them. 
And uh, I just noticed at every wedding that there were these similar characters. There was always a creepy aunt or creepy uncle. There was always a a person who didn't know anybody at the wedding who just was forced to go. Um, There was always a crazy bridesmaid. Sometimes that was me. And uh, I just really wanted to give these characters some dignity and some backstory. So I picked five of my most favorite archetypes of wedding guests who don't have a date. And I wanted to give them a whole book and take some attention off the bride and groom. So I think it was you know, a little bit of a tribute to the guest that I usually am, the single one. (laughs) So you went to a lot of weddings. What was the funniest thing that has happened to you at a wedding? Uh, (laughs) Usually the funny things are are super gross. Um, There's always a lot of vomit at the weddings I go to. I hope everybody's finished their lunch as they listen to this. But um, but actually, the, the most amusing thing that, that happened at a wedding to me was that I was at a wedding in North Carolina, which was held at this beautiful art museum. And a guy came up to me at the end of the wedding. I had not seen this person at the wedding. I had not spoken to him. And he said, well, we're both still here. Do you want to go back to my hotel room? <laughs> And the expectation was that because we were just still standing there that everybody was like looking looking to find a mate for the night. So uh, I just thought that was it took a lot of um, chutzpah <laughs> so to, to ask. And of course, the answer was no. Um, but uh, I was flattered for about 30 seconds until I realized he was not sober. <laughs> Do you have any relationship advice for newlyweds? Oh. You know, it really depends on the couple. So many people spend so long building up to the wedding, but there's this great letdown. So my advice to newlyweds who have really put a lot of emphasis on their wedding is to plan something that they can look forward to that happens like six to eight months after their wedding. You know, there's this great deal of exhaustion and there's a year of figuring it out and dealing with the aftermath and thank you notes. And I think you just need sometimes it's great to put off the honeymoon because a wedding can exhaust you for your whole first year of marriage. So I think that people should get a reward when they've made it through that first year. So newlyweds, as soon as you're done the wedding, plan something great for a year or even two years in because uh, it's it's not all supposed to be about the wedding. And in the spirit of the book itself, do you have any tips for singletons at weddings? Well, just not to assume that everybody's pointing and laughing at you. (laughs) I've learned to really love being single at weddings. I think it's fun. You get to meet new people. I was at a wedding a few weeks ago where I knew no one, and I was definitely the guy who didn't know anybody, uh, much like my character, Phil. And I take it as a great opportunity to to talk to people I'd never talked to, to be a little bit more bold than I am in my everyday life. You know, I danced with someone that night and didn't think twice about it, even though that person was a stranger. And and I think just to have fun. I mean, gosh, it's a, it's usually an event full of food and booze. You know, it's supposed to be fun. And I think it can't it can't stand for something that you don't have. You know, there are a lot of people in couples at weddings who are thinking, oh, I wish I were here alone. So never make assumptions about how people perceive you and never make assumptions about the people around you. And are you at work writing anything new now? Is there anything you can tell us about something that you're writing? I am writing a second book, and I will drop some hints. It is about love and relationships. There is a big breakup involved, and there will be some lovely sex scenes, I hope. And uh, it will be um, taking place in Boston, where I live. So that'll be a lot of fun to write about home. Useful advice, but now on to the food. Catherine Hill is going to be guiding us through her weekend cookbook, and treating us to a recipe for parma ham and mozzarella melts. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name's Danny Horn and I'm here today with Catherine Hill, who's the author of The Weekend Cookbook, who's going to be getting us ready for either a weekend at home or away with some really exciting recipes. But first, Catherine, could you just explain the concept behind the book? Yeah, I'd originally written the book um, because I lived in Malvern at the time and I used to have a lot of people coming over every weekend and I worked Monday to Friday, always really busy. And when Friday finally does come around, I'd think, oh, no, what on earth I'm gonna, am I going to cook for my friends when they come over? Usually it'd be 3 o'clock in the afternoon, they'd be there 7 o'clock-ish. So this is how this book came about. So it's a basically a chronological look at a weekend. Um, it takes you from Friday night when your friends arrive, so you want something really quick and easy. It then goes into nice, simple breakfast ideas, and there's some really nice light options. Or if you're going to have, you want something that's going to kind of fire up for the rest of the day, there's some really nice, big, stonking breakfasts as well. Uh, the following chapter is called um, Easy Lunches, and that's just got lots and lots of lovely ideas for um, lunches at home, and equally a lot of them can be packed up and you can take them away to the beach and enjoy them elsewhere. Um, the next chapter is Saturday Night's Saturday night Special, 
Um, basically, that's kind of given you've got a little bit more time on your hands. You might have a bit of help in the kitchen. There's some nice ideas for main courses in there that uh, maybe are a little bit more tricky to make and might need a little bit more time. But, you know, the results will be fantastic. Um, it then goes into uh, Sunday lunches um, and it's kind of lots of lovely I ideas for things that you can leave in the oven and they'll just happily sit there and look after themselves. So that means you can kind of pop down to the pub with your mates and your family, go for a dog walk, whatever you fancy doing, and then you come back to this fantastically warm kitchen full of lots of lovely, lovely smells and, you know, Sunday lunch will be pretty much ready. Oh, it's nice, yeah, the thought of being able to put something in and absolutely. then just walk away and leave yeah, it. Yeah, and don't worry about it, don't stress about it. And then finally, I've got a really nice um, chapter on puddings um, and there are a few kind of um, get-ahead kind of um, what I've called them are bake and take recipes so it's a couple of cakes that you can bake whilst you're at home so if you're going away for the weekend you can just wrap them up box them up take them away with you and they'll ha they actually improve with with age um, as well as that I've got a few kind of really nice easy assembly job um, puddings so it's kind of things like um, ready-made meringues crushed up mix it with a bit of cream and mascarpone whatever fresh fruits you can get your hands on and it's like the, an instant eaten, um, eaten mess so there's lots of really quick ideas in there as well. Oh perfect yeah. ready for all eventualities <laughs> <laughs> and another really important thing I think um, as I say, it is. it was written initially with the idea of going away for a weekend, but equally it works if you've, you're having people, family coming over for the weekend at home. Um, and I've got lots of ideas about how to make life easy. Um, so if you're going away, what to pack, what not to pack. Um, you're talking to a woman who once took, you know, I toured around New Zealand once and took in my backpack an endless bottles of spices, soy sauces and all these things that I never, ever use. So it's how to organise yourself. And a lot of it is just about planning ahead. And you've really got to kind of embrace the good old Internet shopping. And if you're going away with friends, you know, amend the shopping list online and bring it all together. So that way it you know you, you don't have to go shopping you can split the cost 50 50 and it just makes life really really easy um i've got ideas for um lots of lovely recipes in there i think so on friday night ease um the friday night easy section has lots of kind of ready-made ingredients that are really easy there might be store and store cupboard ingredients that are just very easy to throw together so dinner can be ready in 15 20 minutes and that's probably exactly what you need at the end of an exhausting <laughs> week at work I often find myself on a Friday night going home all ready to just have a nice dinner in and then just can't seem to make a recipe out of what I have. Yeah, I think it's, it's quite useful. Absolutely, because if you have a few kind of really good um, ingredients in the fridge just on standby, some really nice um, pasta, some chorizos that will happily sit in the fridge for weeks, you don't have to worry about them. And they, you can then just kind of turn that into a really delicious um, quick pasta sauce with some bought um, pasta sauces and some fresh herbs. And once you start adding fresh herbs and all these clever little ingredients, no one is going to know that you haven't kind of cooked it from scratch. And that's, you know, that's what we all want to do, really. Definitely. <laughs> um, well, actually, do you know what? I think it'd be really great if you could tell our listeners some of these key items that they could either have in their store cupboard or have when they're going away yeah. for the weekend. Um, I think... Things things that last for ages are really good to have in your store cupboards in the fridge. Things like halloumi will last forever and ever, and it's just it travels really well. Um, I've mentioned chorizos, things like having lemons and limes. It sounds really basic, but having those in the kitchen at the ready, they just add instant zest and zing to anything you add them to. Um, if you're going away, you may think this is a bit mad, but I do tend to take fresh herbs with me because, you know, you may find them in the garden if you go to a cottage and you're lucky enough to find them there. Great. But um, I sometimes take pots of, of basil because they, they'll last the transport well and they're not going to wilt and die. So that's another great thing to do. Um, it sounds really obvious. I've been to so many country cottages that we've rented with friends and gone in there and thought, oh no, there's no salt and pepper. You might find just like a dodgy bit of white pepper in a pot and a bit of soggy, um, very old salt. So it's just little things like that packet because you may need it. Um, things like soy sauce, I just take one really good um, soy sauce um, and if I want it to be, you know, you can either have dark or light, I just add a little bit of water to the dark soy sauce just to kind of, you know, weaken the flavours a little bit. Um, and I think once you've kind of grasped those few ingredients, you, you can't kind of go wrong over a weekend away. Um, one of the 
real store cupboard um, recipes that's in Friday Night Easy is a recipe that I've written called Parma Ham and Mozzarella Melts. And this is really good because Parma Ham, again, sits in the fridge quite happily, as does mozzarella. And you need a bag of salad and a few herbs, um, some fresh basil, and you're away. So it's an instant supper. So I'll just kind of talk you how that's, that's put together. Basically, you just take whole mozzarella um, balls, probably about four of them to serve four people, and halve each one, um, cut each one in half and drain it really well because you don't want any of the kind of liquid on it. So blot it a little bit with kitchen paper. Then all you need to do is just place the um, mozzarella on a work surface and chuck some fresh basil over it and then just lay over the top of it two slices of parma ham and then just roughly encase the um, mozzarella in the parma ham so you've got this little parcel now you don't need cocktail sticks or anything like that because it just all sticks together really nicely so once you've covered all of these halves of mozzarella in the parma ham um, just give them a little grind of black pepper because you don't need salt the parma ham's quite salty anyway Um, the next thing you need to do is just heat um, a nice big frying pan and once it's warm add some um, olive oil into it and then just drop the parma ham wrapped mozzarella balls into the pan you need to cook it over probably quite a high heat for about five minutes and just turn it every now and then and if you've got some tongs you'll feel the the mozzarella cheese just begin to kind of give and melt a little bit and once it gets to that stage the parma ham will be nice and crispy and you're ready to take them out of the pan So how I do it when I serve it for friends, I just get a nice huge platter, empty a bag of salad, nice crisp leaves, nothing too um, soft or wilting because it will as soon as the hot mozzarella hits it, it'll just kind of collapse. So some nice crisp salad leaves, took the mozzarella, parma ham melts on the top, some halved cherry tomatoes and then just a really quick drizzle of um, balsamic vinegar and that's it. It takes probably 10 minutes from start to finish and it's just the perfect, perfect Friday night supper. Sounds so nice. Yeah, all you need now is a glass of wine and some nice crusty bread to kind of mop everything up and you're, you're sorted. And I think that's really, really good advice. Thank you so much, Catherine, for coming in and talking to us about your wonderful book. That's a pleasure and I hope everybody enjoys reading it and cooking from it. And finally, we have Ravina Bajva, Managing Editor for Penguin Audiobooks, who's going to be talking to us about an inspiring project she's been working on in collaboration with the Refugee Council. Turning 18 is a collaborative audio project between the Refugee Council and Penguin Books. After holding a writing workshop at Penguin, we compiled a collection of audio stories written and read by refugees which were inspired by the theme Turning 18. The collection features a guest contribution by author Joe Danthorne and will also feature the voices of supporters Vivian Westwood, Zoe Wanamaker and artist Grayson Perry. Both adult and child refugees have contributed to this collection, which explores themes of identity, coming of age, memory and freedom. Contributors include those who have fled conflict, trafficked children and those who have escaped persecution for political beliefs or sexual orientation. They originate from Uganda, Afghanistan, Jamaica, Colombia, Nigeria, Iran, Tanzania and Somalia. The stories range from purposely crafted vignettes to very simply written short recollections. We are releasing the recordings as a serialised audiobook using the combined digital platforms of all parties involved and through a companion Spinebreakers campaign. This is a not-for-profit publishing project in support of the work of the Refugee Council's Children's Section, who are celebrating 18 years assisting separated refugee children in the UK. You can hear the stories at www.turning18.co.uk. I'm now going to hand over to Ravina, who managed the whole project on the Penguin side. Well, earlier this year, um, I heard about the work of the Refugee Council's Children's Section, and particularly the issues faced by child refugees who arrive here in the UK alone. The Refugee Council exists to support refugees arriving in the UK from all over the world. It's a place where people can go and get advice and support. For child refugees, they can have English lessons. There's access to therapeutic care if they're traumatised. They can meet other people that are in the same situation as them. It's a, it's a big source of comfort to people that often here don't know the language. And these are young people who have often travelled huge distances and have lived through trauma and you know separation from their families. I couldn't imagine what a childhood of such upheaval could be like, but I felt it was important to try and protect these people. How did you begin the project? The project started with a writing workshop held here at the Penguin offices in central London and they were led by the author Ramesh Gunasakira. And this workshop was attended by a range of refugees and asylum seekers, including clients of the children's section. 
um, and we ran a, a series of creative exercises and encouraged them to think about this idea of turning 18 and to try and reflect upon their own 18th birthday or to think forward if they hadn't turned 18 yet and to try and think about what that might mean for them and what the future might hold for them. And we were just hugely impressed by the range of responses that we got from that workshop. It was quite staggering. And we got some very simply written recollections about where a person was when they were 18 and what, what happened to them and what they were expected from life to some very quite literary pieces which were a bit more imaginative. So after this initial workshop, we continued to work with mainly clients of the children's section and to continue getting them to write their stories. We also received some guest pieces from some of our authors here at Penguin, um, including Beverly Naidu, whose book The Other Side of Truth won an award for its portrayal of child refugees, and also the author Joe Dunthorne, whose book Submarine examines kind of similar themes of identity and coming of age. So when you had all this content, what did you do next? The next stage of the project was to record all the pieces. As a publisher, the role of a company like Penguin is is one of finding and choosing and lifting stories from the world that's around us and then delivering these to a wider audience. It struck me that this is a group within our society that has huge stories to tell, but their voices are often hard to hear as amongst all the other noise that goes on in UK life. And you know, a city like London is full of these kind of stories, but it's often quite hard to hear them or we're not really making the effort to hear. Um, there's you know, the, the lady that's sitting on the bus or the girl that you cross in the street at night time or the boy in the takeaway shop. How often do we stop and wonder what they're thinking or what they've seen and what could we learn if we knew? And I think this project threw up some very interesting opportunities to kind of amplify these stories that are everywhere. So the recording process was really quite exciting for us. It was a chance to invite people who've come here from all over the world into our studio and to record their voices. And these are all people that live here in the UK now and have incredible stories, often very harrowing stories. At Penguin, we've got a very long and well-established history of publishing audiobooks, ranging from literary classics to commercial bestsellers. We've worked with authors and actors who are very well known, but this was the first project that we've recorded where we used such a wide-ranging scale of voices in one collection. Many of the people that have read for this collection have overcome great adversity. Um, they've people that have fled conflict and war zones. There are children that had become child soldiers or that had been trafficked here. There were people that had had to leave their whole families behind and or people that simply weren't able to be themselves. So we have a few people in this collection who were persecuted because of their sexual orientation. And in the process of recording their stories, we got to find out quite a bit about them and it, it was very, very moving for us, for everybody involved. But we hope that by enabling them to record their stories that we could bring these to a wider audience and people could learn a lot more about the experience of refugees that live amongst our society. Can you go into some more detail about the stories in the collection? The stories in the Turning 18 collection are really brilliantly diverse. Um, they draw out memories of childhood. There's talk about kites and cricket and music and family and role models. We learn about a lot of different places from all over the world. They also talk about the idea of coming of age and what that means depending on what kind of society you live in. They explore ideas on identity and of the will of the individual against tyrannical regimes. They also touch upon horrors that are unimaginable to most in the UK. Um, and another recurring theme is the idea of legal status and what it means to exist in a society when you don't have it. And effectively, you become blind to your own future. A lot of the children who've contributed to this collection, when they've come here, they have been protected by the state because as a child, you automatically receive protection. But as they approach their 18th birthday, they, their rights will change when they turn 18. So it can be quite an anxious time for them, quite stressful and this project was an, allowed them to reflect on what it's kind of like to live here in the here and now when you're not really sure what's going to happen to you in the future, whether you'll get sent back to the place that you fled from. And it's, I think it's quite interesting for us all to know about these experiences and to kind of contrast them with our own experiences of turning 18. 
Can you tell us a bit more about why the project's called Turning 18? I think the theme Turning 18, obviously, it's to highlight the fact that the Refugee Council's children's section has been operating for 18 years, helping children that arrive here alone. Um, So obviously it was a kind of obvious theme for the project. So in the UK, Turning 18 is synonymous with an idea of progression. It's viewed as a common experience. It's something that happens to everybody. It's a rite of passage, if you like. So we asked everybody to reflect on the same thing, but what was quite astounding was all the different experiences within this common milestone and how there's a whole range of different paths that people experience and that they face when they turn 18. So it's quite an interesting publishing idea. Um, How how are you going to go about publishing it? The publishing of the story is actually a very exciting part of the process in this project. Um, We decided to make this completely digital, so all the stories are being released online um, and we're also releasing them serially between the end of November until the end of December. So these stories will be coming out one at a time every other day and you can follow the stories and get a bit more information about the writers if you log on to www.turning18.co.uk. If you are on SoundCloud, you can also follow the stories there and you can also subscribe to Turning 18 um, through the iTunes podcast directory. And how can our listeners access these stories? The purpose of publishing these online is to kind of engage all of our audience on social media and to hopefully see how far the stories can spread through social media. You can listen to the stories, you can share them, you can tweet them, you can comment on them. And we hope that this could be an interesting way of getting the message out about all the different experiences there are of turning 18. Well, you've got some really exciting names involved. Could you just tell us a little bit more about them? Yeah, we have some famous supporters of the Refugee Council's work who kindly agreed to provide some narration for the project. So in this in the collection, you'll also be able to hear the voices of Grayson Perry, the artist, or the actress Zoe Wanamaker, and the fashion designer Vivian Westwood. So their role in the project was to provide a little bit of background information to each story, so just to give a bit of context about who the writer is and where they've come from. And we also have a bit of video from some of these well-known people as well so if you log on to the site you'll be able to see some kind of behind the scenes of the project. Well thanks very much Ravina for coming and telling us all about the Turning 18 project and for our listeners you can now hear a few extracts of some of the audio stories. Valentina. Valentina arrived in the UK aged 17 having been trafficked from Bolivia. Her piece depicts the complexities of turning 18 in a strange country with no family or friends trying desperately to come to terms with traumatic events and attempting to find a voice in society. Turning 18. I remember when I was a child, looking forward to turning 18. I loved living with my mom, but I looked forward having freedom to be able to buy my own clothes, to looking after myself and going everywhere I wanted, to become someone. I was excited about it. I remember as a child, my mom saying that I would become someone, that I would be someone special. But it wasn't how I thought it would be. It was completely different. Everything changed. I lost my mom, I lost my hope and my dreams. I remember waking up in the morning on my 18th birthday, hiding under the covers with tears in my eyes. I remember feeling incredibly lonely. It was one of the most stressful times of my life. Everything was so different. Everything seemed so hard to understand. Coming from an other continent wasn't easy for me. I have to learn a new language. I have to learn a new culture, make new friends, get used to new faces. I have to listen to strangers judging me about reasons why I was here. Even though it wasn't my choice, I remember being bullied for not being able to speak properly. I can't count the number of times I was scared and afraid of people who have hurt me, those who destroyed me as a person. Turning 18, I have a mix of feelings. 
feelings that I didn't want to live anymore. A feeling of hate for some people, but a small feeling that perhaps if I work at her, then I could be someone like my mom has said. Even though all of these bad things happened, I felt like deleting all the bad memories. I couldn't bear my thoughts in my head. My journey transformed me into someone different and I have left my childhood behind. When I was 18, my asylum application had been refused and I didn't know where my future would be. I wanted to stay, but I didn't have life here. I was very confused. I knew if they sent me back, it wasn't safe to go back to the same place, to the same people. I have no idea how I will survive. The Refugee Council helped me with so many things at the time. When I arrived, I didn't have a social worker for ages. I was told that I was looked after by duty, having one social worker after another. They didn't look after me properly and they didn't understand what I need. They sent me to live long away from my social services office. It was the refugee council who kept in touch with me and who helped me. They gave me travel money so I could come to the English classes. They kept calling social services to tell them that I needed to be moved. I was really isolated and they helped me to make other girls who have similar experience to me. When my asylum application was refused, they got me a good solicitor and they took me to my appointments. They took me to see experts to help me with my case. They took me to my barrister and to the court. They always encouraged me and they did things to make me happier. I knew that they would fight for me when no one else would and when I couldn't fight for myself. Now I will tell my 18 years old self to stand up for myself. Then I was scared to tell anyone what was happening. I said yes to everything. I was so desperate and I didn't know that I could say what I thought and what I feel. Now I know that I can say what I think and what I feel and what I believe. Thinking about things now, I don't know how I cope. I miss so many things from my childhood, but I know I can become a child again. Now that I have been through the worst of things, I know that even when things are difficult, now I know that they can never be that bad again. I think I can cope with things in the future and I'm working hard to become the someone that my mom believed I could be. Tarek. Tarek's story captures a specific yet fleeting moment in time, the day before his 18th birthday. In it, he creates a bold and vivid snapshot of that day and has encapsulated a feeling of excited anticipation of new life and freedom to come as he prepares to take the driving seat into manhood. One day to go. The usual bang on my bedroom door by my mum at 6.30am signaled the start of a brand new day. I pull the covers over my head in protest having to wake up at this ungodly hour to beat the rush hour traffic to school. It was a Monday morning which meant I had to reach school extra early in time for assembly. I closed my eyes and tried to return to dreamland where everything was right with the world. Then I remembered. It was one day until my 18th birthday. I jumped out of bed as if someone had shouted fire and rushed to the makeshift calendar on my wall which had a countdown to adulthood. In one swift motion I ripped the front page off the calendar to reveal in bold writing, one day to go. I could feel a smile forming on my face as I realised the day was so close. How quickly time passed since 120 days ago when I had a fight with my mum and told her I was moving out as soon as I turned 18. That was when I decided to start the countdown and post it on my door as a reminder to not only myself, but also my mum, that soon I would become an adult. Turning 18 meant so much to me. 
I could finally have the freedom to do whatever I pleased because I would officially become a man. I was showered and ready for school in 20 minutes. As usual, I was the first out the door and sat waiting in the car for my mum and younger brother. I put the key in the ignition and started the engine of the small Honda Civic, then slid over into the front passenger seat. Another smile crept on my face as the thought of me being able to drive myself to school as of tomorrow dawned on me. I turned the radio to Zip 103 FM, which played normal music of this century. Two minutes later, Mum and my brother got into the car, both of them fussing about how late we were going to be. Instinctively, Mum looked at the radio and tuned it back to her gospel music station. When you have your own keys and car, then you can listen to whatever nonsense radio station you like. Don't touch my radio, she said. I moved to protest, but held my tongue. One more day, I murmured to myself. One more day. Abol. In this piece, Abol blurs fact and fiction. Propelling the listener through time and space, he presents a coming of age coloured by displacement, but focused on the future. Time as Mirror at 18 by Abel Frushan. When I was 14, I read my first novel in the back of my father's car, with my little brothers disturbing me with their noisy horseplay. The book happened to be The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. I later realised how what chased me in the next four years was to follow the footsteps of the author to Imperial College London, where for reasons other than the book I aspired to study at. I left my hometown at 17, never wanting to look back on a childhood life at home that felt paradoxically unhappy. I had kind parents, lived in a well-heeled neighbourhood of Tehran, and went to a good school. But something felt swimming under the surface, an unhappiness with the way life was lived around me. There, in London, on a cold February morning, outside the college, I met a peculiar man, middle-aged and wearing jeans like mine, greeting me to hand me a leaflet. I felt as if I knew him from before, but could not place him in my memories. He said, see you at midnight at the club, behind the town hall if you wish to talk about this, and left. Ask Mr. Y the door. This is what the leaflet had to say. When I was 18, I wanted to change the world. At 30, I realised I can change it by changing myself and settling the world as it is. Then, at 45, I just wanted to change my house. Now I realise I can change my house and myself and my world if only there is someone, perhaps through a mirror of time, to remind me of this great endeavour called living out who you really can dare to be. Not the labels others have put on you. Not the cages others have made comfortable for you. Not the put-downs in the name of being realistic. Reality is always what others define to crush your dreams. I was intrigued by this little piece. I used to value older people for their experience of life, and yet I knew their experience mattered only if they took on an attitude of being a student of life. I thought of living as reading the book of life, but my question was, if life is a book, then who is the author? And if living is like reading, then when is the time to act? There I was, passing town hall at midnight, having forgotten about the pamphlet, when the clock tower rang twelve to remind me I should just turn the corner and apprehensively ask the doorman of this club, I have come to see Mr. Y. He nodded to a woman inside, who ushered me into this smoky, music-filled place downstairs and pointed me to go through a bead curtain and turn left into what I found to be a hall of mirrors. With no one inside but a faint whisper parlayed on tape. You are stardust, made of the life of a million stars, who live as fire, die as supernova, and if they are big enough, they die into a black hole, 
that make up the centre of every galaxy, or into a white dwarf that lives life as inert as sands by the beach of time. Abol turned 18 in 1976 before the Islamic Revolution of 1979. Whilst in his final year at school, the elder brother of a close friend of his was murdered by the Shah's secret police. The news prompted Abol's decision to leave Iran and study in the UK. He took a first in mechanical engineering, emerging later from university with a PhD in fluid dynamics. Today, Abol is a celebrated poet and chair of Exiled Writers, Inc. He received his British citizenship on Valentine's Day, 1990. If you would like to know more about the Turning 18 project, please visit www.turning18.co.uk or for more information on the Refugee Council and the services they provide, please go to www.refugeecouncil.org.uk. And that's it from the Penguin Podcast. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, visit the website, thepenguinpodcast.co.uk. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email them on podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or find them on Twitter at Penguin Podcast. You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.